Hey, uh, we just got done singing, I will rest in your promises. Anybody sin this past week? Anybody pursue or love something, someone other than Jesus ultimately? All right, this past week I have. And so coming to church, gathering together, the Bible talks about this in Psalm chapter 40, verse 17. Well, I will not conceal and hide your steadfast love. I want to declare it. One of the reasons we come together is we declare what God has done in Christ. And so we want to proclaim his promises and remind ourselves that God accepts us, the Father accepts us on account of the finished work of Jesus. And so you may have screwed up this past week. You may have fallen short. The truth is all of us have. And as we just got done saying, I will rest in your promises. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So God accepts us. We're cleansed. We're forgiven. We're redeemed. We're rescued. We're considered not guilty, not because of what we do, but because of grace found in Christ. I love that song. Thanks, Carmen, for singing it. My wife and I struggled with infertility about, uh, for about five years, and uh, we desperately wanted kids. I served as a college pastor across the river, and it seemed like it was something in the water. Everybody who got married just had kids instantly and not us. Then we moved to Florida where my brother and his wife joined us. They got pregnant. The high school pastor was a dear friend of ours. His wife got pregnant. My wife's sister got pregnant. Everybody was pregnant except us. And so we were left thinking, wonder what's going on. And we struggle with that. Um, one of the purposes of marriage is to, is to have kids. And uh, I think through uh, biologically or through adoption, it's one of the first, it's the first command given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And there's a reminder in a woman's life uh, one of the reasons why she was created to, to have children, not to be trite, because for a lot of people, this is really difficult. Had a couple come up to me in the first service, talk about they struggle with infertility for seven years. And so reproduction is part of the DNA to be a human. And so this infertility was, was difficult for us. Compound the, the problem, difficulty that my wife's father is an OBGYN and his job is to help and to fix things. And and there's nothing that he could do we didn't, we didn't know. And we ended up, obviously, a lot of you know, we have four kids. We became parents by way of adoption through our first child, Lucianne, another Lucy. And uh, so we're grateful for what God has done. But reproduction is part of who we are, not only just as people, but as Christians. Mark Twain said this, that the two most important days in your life are the day that you were born and the day that you discovered why. Right? The day that you were born and the day that you discovered why. And for a believer, our call, our role and responsibility is to make Jesus known wherever we go and wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we play, wherever we live, that we would make Jesus known. To make disciples, to reproduce ourselves in the lives of other people. And so we want to have a multiplication mindset to our church. What do I mean by that? Well, first let me talk about something else. Over the last several months, we have had dozens and dozens and dozens of people join our fellowship. Some through conversions, they've come to faith in Christ, through baptism. Um, some have come from another church, they moved into the area. And so we're really thankful. I wanted to have those stats, I just forgot. But we've had dozens and dozens of people join our church, again, which is God's grace. Addition to our church. There are many churches in the landscape of Indiana that don't have what we have. And so we should be grateful for that. And though we're thankful for addition, and we are, and we're humbled, and we want to continue to see God do that, we want to multiply ourselves. That's one of the, the visions that our lead pastor, Larry Riley, has, is to not just only be about this particular 
um, campus, but also our Palmyra campus. And tonight we have our Corden gathering. And we have hopes and plans and dreams and aspirations to even do more. And I heard somebody a couple weeks ago, oh, that, uh, that campus thing, huh? And, and he wasn't saying it like with excitement about the fact that we were going to push back darkness in these various places in Indiana. He was kind of like, what's going on with that, that campus thing? Here's why. There are areas all over southern Indiana that do not have healthy gospel churches. And has God not seen fit to bless Graceland Baptist Church, New Albany, with resources and a rich, rich history? Do we not want to take it to the neighborhoods and to the regions? And so Larry has a tremendous vision um, that in the years to come, we would multiply ourselves, not just through addition, but we would reproduce ourselves. And it should be an obvious and visible feature of our church. And so this morning, we are starting a new series on mission. We're talking about missions locally, nationally, what I'll do this morning, and then internationally. And really, it fits in with our mission statement that we want to see Jesus transform lives in the neighborhoods, the generations, and the nations. And I want to talk this morning about being rooted in the gospel, being rooted in the gospel. So if you have your smartphone or your Bible, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word if you are physically able to do. We're trying to get your cardio in with this sitting up and standing up at Graceland. I heard somebody say, yes. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. This is God's voice. This is God's voice to us. And I heard somebody say the day, if you have an all-powerful, supernatural, invisible God, and he chose to see fit to write down in words who he is, would you not want to read it and know it? That's what we're about to do. All right, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. This is God's word to us. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me and the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. May God bless the preaching and the teaching and the listening of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would sit under the word, that we would be men, women, boys, and girls that are rooted, grounded in the good news of Jesus. There are many things that we can love, many things that we can pursue, and many things that we can um, make much in our lives. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. May we be a gospel people. May we be a good news people. In the Spirit of God, would you encourage and teach us right now that what are the next steps that we need to take to be obedient, to be faithful, to be rooted in the gospel? We pray this with expectancy. Amen. You can be seated. Paul writes this letter. This is his last letter, 2 Timothy. He was soon to be martyred for the faith there in Rome. And this is his last letter that he has penned. He writes to his protege, his mentee, Timothy, and he talks about the call of God upon his life. And we'll talk a lot about that. But calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are and everything we do and everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dedication lived out in response to his summons upon our life and us in his service. Regular, ordinary, normal, everyday Christians 
God calls to himself to go out and to tell about the change that Jesus has made in their lives. This is not rock star Christianity. This is simple, everyday, normal Christianity, just like a guy by the name of Edward Kimball, who I will tell you who he is here in just a moment. But we want to be faithful. We want to be bold to take the message and declare it locally, as we'll talk about next Sunday morning, nationally in our country and internationally among the nations. And we're called to engage in this mission that God has given to every believer in Christ. So every believer, every person who has named the name of Jesus, that great commission, this awesome commission that God gave to the disciples is not just given to them, but it's given to you and given to me. And we're not just to evangelize, but we're to make disciples, people who will be learners, followers, pupils of Jesus Christ, and we're called to be courageous. But where does our courage come from? Where does our boldness come from? Paul tells us in the first part of this letter that his boldness, his confidence comes from two things. It comes from the fact that he knows in whom he has believed. He knows in whom he has believed. The essence of the Christian faith is knowing God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an accumulation of facts, but an intimate knowledge of who God is. A.W. Tozer, a theologian, author said that the pinnacle of the pursuit of a, of a person's life is a knowledge of God. What should we strive for as we engage with other people? That they would have knowledge of God. Jesus said this very thing in John 17, verse 3, that this is eternal life, knowledge of God. And so his boldness, his confidence comes. I know in whom I have believed. Where's your confidence come from? Where's your boldness come from, your courage? You'll be a man woman, boy, or girl who is courageous and bold for King Jesus as we come to understand who he is in the word. Secondly, Paul's also convinced that God is able to guard until that day, the day that he actually goes to see him face to face, that the salvation that he has been entrusted with, this message of the gospel that Paul has come to know and to champion and to teach and to go on all these missionary journeys. He says, I know that God is faithful and powerful and he can guard my salvation. Well, who could take Paul's salvation away? Paul couldn't even take his salvation away. Circumstances couldn't take his salvation away. God guarded his salvation. So he was bold. He was courageous and this is what has happened to Paul. This is, what happened, this is what has happened to Timothy as they were preaching the gospel and calling people to repent and believe. One person said, when the gospel is preached, when King Jesus is proclaimed, people are summoned to believe and trust and obey God rather than anyone or anything else. That's what Paul means by call Timothy. Timothy, you are called to this. Believers, you are called to this. This happens not because we were special or because we behaved in a particular way, but simply because of God's goodness and his love for you. He called you to himself. And when you realize what the Christian gospel is all about, the resurrection of Jesus as the unveiling of God's power and the call of God to you here and now, putting that power to work in your own life, bringing about the promise of your own resurrection one day in due course, then your entire world of values are turned upside down. We don't live for ourselves. We don't live for our own ambitions, our own pursuits, our own preferences, our own conveniences, our own comforts. We live for the pleasure of the king and want to be on mission for him locally, nationally, internationally. 
Seeing Jesus transform lives in the neighborhoods and the, and the generations and the nations. So what do we do? Well, in this passage, in chapter 1, the latter part of chapter 1, following into chapter 2, there's several truths that I want you to see about being rooted in the gospel, being grounded in the gospel. And the first is this, stay the course. Stay the course. Don't deviate from the gospel. He says in the latter part of chapter 1, follow the pattern of sound words. Follow the pattern of sound words. Just as an architect might sketch a pattern before adding details, or an artist might sketch a design, or a writer might put together an outline. So Timothy was to follow Paul's outline of the gospel, to teach it to his heart, to understand it, to believe it, to apply it, and then share it with others. To stay the course with the gospel. To not deviate from it. To not add to it or subtract from it. Why? Because these are sound words. The word sound can be translated healthy. Follow the pattern of sound or healthy words. Why would Paul talk about the gospel message as healthy? Well, what message can take spiritually sick people and really spiritually dead people and make them alive, make them healthy? Well, there's only one message that can do that. That is the gospel of Christ. So we are to stay the course. Secondly, we want to guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. God entrusted Paul with it. He's given it to Timothy, the same command that you are to guard this good, this beautiful, praiseworthy, excellent, in other ways that it can be translated. Guard this good deposit. What is the deposit? The deposit is the gospel message. I want you to guard this good praiseworthy, excellent, beautiful message that I've given you. I want you to guard it. I want you to defend it, protect it, guard the integrity of it. The word guard means to protect a palace from intruders and possessions from thieves. But how do you guard the gospel message? Well, you rightly defend it. You rightly explain it. You rightly apply it. You don't want to misapply it. You don't want to misunderstand it. You don't want to misrepresent it. A dear friend of mine who serves as the president of North American Mission Board, one of my mentors, I've served as his college pastor. He's now my boss, 17 people removed. And um, he oversees church planting and disaster relief and evangelism for the North American Mission Board, one of our Southern Baptist entities that we give money to and contribute to. And he's one of the most mission-minded people I know. I remember I was doing work at one of our particular campuses. He brought a couple in, and they were sitting down. He goes, hey, pray for them. I'm about to share the gospel with them. And I watched him share the gospel, and I watched them bend the knee of their heart, so to speak, and trust Christ. I mean, it was just a regular occurrence to see him love people and have a heart for the nations and have a heart for our country and our state. In fact, he led the church in Louisville to be the largest monetary contributor in the state, even though they didn't live in the state and do ministry in the state. He had a heart for Indiana. And then he had a daughter who grew up and wanted to follow dad's footsteps and wanted to go to China. And my boss said, why do you want to go to China? I mean, it's probably a little more safe here and if you were to get married over there and have kids, I mean, that's a long way away. It's a plane ticket. And, and just the convenience and the comforts of here and sending his daughter to another country thousands of miles away. And then that moment, he talks about how he misrepresented the gospel. What message is there worth 
in life doing anything and everything possible with every ounce of our being to tell people how they were created, how they can be forgiven, the gospel message. And I've heard parents, and maybe this is you, I've heard parents talk about their high school kids or their college kids who want to go into the pastoral ministry or want to go to the nations and they'll kind of poo-poo that idea. Talking, why do you want to do that? What message compels people to go from death to life? And one of the greatest privileges we can see as young people who get on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ and want to live for him. We should never, ever squelch that. We should throw gasoline on it and let them burn for the Lord Jesus Christ. Adults, young people, we should defend the gospel and we should rightly represent it. There's no greater message, no greater message than the gospel message. Well, how else do we guard the message? Well, we want to talk about sin. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Disappearance of Sin, talks about the fact that there has been a disappearance of sin. Christians don't want to talk about sin. But the gospel necessarily means that you and I are sinners because Jesus came to save sinners. There's a need to repent and change. We want to defend the gospel rightly applied. The gospel is not moralism or niceties. I perhaps, I think perhaps that is the greatest danger to the gospel today, this counterfeit gospel that, listen, if you live a good life and a moral life, God who is like this benevolent grandpa who's going to sit on the front porch in his rocking chair and he's going to put you on his knee and he's going to balance you. He's going to say, hey, why do you want to come to heaven? I've been a good person. He's going to say, come on in. He's not. Moralism and niceties are not the gospel. They're a counterfeit gospel. We want to defend and rightly explain the gospel. As we're being rooted in the gospel, we take the gospel to our neighborhoods and generations and the nations, locally, nationally, internationally. We want to tell people that they are sinners, but there is a greater Savior. There's this great King who came and considered not even equality with God a thing to be grasped, and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a criminal's cross, your cross and mine. And he rose again triumphantly three days later. We want to rightly define the gospel, we want to guard it. So when people say, hey, when did you become a Christian? And they say, well, I was baptized. Because baptism doesn't usher you into the presence of God. It doesn't bring about forgiveness. Those testimonies were really a picture of what God had already done in their heart. Not membership, not longevity, not being a deacon, not teaching Sunday school, not being a nice person. There are lots of moral people that I want to emulate my life after, but have not been changed by Jesus. What saves people is the blood of Christ. That's my only hope. I'm resting in his promises. And so we just want to be a normal, everyday, unextraordinary person like Edward Kimball. You say, who is that? I'll tell you in just a moment. Now, Paul, in typical Paul fashion, gives a couple negative examples of people who are not rooted in the gospel. And he gives one positive example. The two negative examples are individuals by the name of Phagellus and Hermogenes. If you're looking for names for your kids, there they are. <laughs> Phagellus and Hermogenes. The positive example is a guy named Onesiphorus, which is even better. For Phagellus and Hermogenes, he tells us in the latter part of chapter 1, you are all aware, it is known there is public knowledge. There are individuals who once had a vibrant faith in Christ, but are nowhere to be found. They have abandoned, they have deserted the faith. And then he gives this positive example of Onesiphorus, who was not ashamed, but was courageous and refreshed Paul when he was in prison. 
You know, there's two things that are going to go on forever into eternity. The souls of men and women and God's word. And forever, you have three names that are written down in 2 Timothy. Phagellus and Hermogenes. I don't know how you sign that. I am so sorry. That's just horrible. And Anisiphorus. And they're going to go, they're, gonna, they're, they're written down forever. Forever. Two men who abandoned the faith, who were not rooted in the gospel. They didn't stay the course. They certainly didn't defend it. They walked away. And there are people in your life, it's probably hard to hear, people in my life that once held this dear to their heart, but they don't believe and embrace these things anymore. Then you've got other people like Onesiphorus, who was not ashamed, but was courageous. Why would Paul write these names down? Because he's writing to a young man who was a little timid, who lacked some courage and lacked some boldness as he saw the landscape of Ephesus and he saw the debauchery, the immorality. He saw all the problems, all the issues in the church and outside the church. He was a little intimidated. You ever get intimidated as you look at the church and look at the landscape of our country and the world? You ever get a little intimidated and think, man, this is not going well. This is a little discouraging. Jesus, you got to come back. Jesus is on the throne. We know that, right? But he wants to encourage us. I know in whom I've, I have believed, and God is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. We want to stay the course, being rooted in the gospel. We want to defend it. We want to simply be a normal unextraordinary Edward Kimball as we're rooted in the gospel and take the gospel to our neighborhoods. Had a lady come up to me first service and said, I've been praying for months about starting a little in-home Bible study with some friends in my neighborhood. I was so intimidated about asking them and I asked them and each and every one of them said yes. So she's starting a Bible study in her home to talk to people about Jesus. Wow, living on mission. You don't have to go to Ukraine. Maybe you need to go to Ukraine, but it might be you just need to go across the street to tr see Jesus transform lives in the neighborhoods, generations, and nations. Stay the course, guard, and then thirdly, pass on the gospel. Chapter two, verse one. You then, my child, in light of Phagellus, in light of Hermogenes, in light of Onesiphorus, you then my child, you then my brother, you then my protege, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pass on the gospel. He says, be strengthened or be strong. It comes from the verb to empower. It's in the present tense, which you could translate it then. Uh, so keep on being strengthened. Keep on being empowered. But it's also pointing to the fact that God is the one who does the strengthening. God is the one who does the empowering. It's called a divine passive. God does the powering. God does the strengthening. And we just respond to it. Another divine passive is in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. All right, so it's up to us, right? Work out your salvation of fear and trembling. But verse 13 says, for it is God who is at work in you, a divine pastor. God is the one who strengthens us and empowers us. And we respond to his work in our lives. We pass on the gospel, not on our own strength, but in the strength that comes with keeping our hearts tethered to Jesus. So it's not how long we've been a Christian, how much knowledge we have, how good we've been, how moral we've been, how much money. Our strength our power, being empowered, comes in 
Jesus and we want to reproduce ourselves by passing on the gospel, defending the gospel, staying the course, and being rooted in the good news of Christ. And then he says, entrust what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. I would say women also, all right? We're not being gender exclusive here. He's writing to Timothy to press on, to entrust this to men who will pastor, but the implication is obviously to men and to women. Entrust this to generations. Jesus gave it to Paul. We see that in chapter one, verse 12. He didn't make up the message as he says elsewhere. We don't make up these things, right? Paul gave it to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, the totality of Paul's instructions over three years of being in Ephesus, not a secret tradition handed on to Timothy privately, but a public instruction whose trust was guaranteed by the many witnesses who heard it and who could therefore check Timothy's teaching against the apostle and trust this to faithful men. Timothy to faithful men. Men, you're to entrust this. It's the same word. I love this. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. When he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, right? Right there before the crucifixion. Into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit just as the Son knew that his life was safe in the Father's hands, so Timothy was to put the gospel into safe hands. Safekeeping. And trust it to faithful women and to faithful men, which is why not anybody could be a Sunday school teacher. Which is why not anybody could be an elder. Which is why not anybody could be a deacon. Which is why not everybody can be in leadership. We want faithful men Women, boys, and girls who show themselves to be faithful in walking with Christ. Faithful people to other faithful people who then have a responsibility to teach others. Who brought the gospel to you? So there's a good way to kind of distill it down to see Paul's points. Who brought the gospel to you? My dad became a believer when he was at the Air Force Academy. Somebody in the Navigators, um, a parachurch ministry, pointed him to Jesus. He became a believer. My mom went to the Baptist College of Charleston. She was a pot-smoking hippie in college. Had a do-rag. Everybody in the BSU, the Baptist Student Union, was intimidated by my mom. My mom was loud. She spoke her mind. Not a lot has changed. She's just a little bit more like Jesus now because Jesus has saved her. But she was a pot-smoking hippie, and everybody avoided her. She went to a tent revival. Jay Strack, who's a nationally known figure now, who loved Jesus, put up a tent and began to talking to his fellow classmates about Jesus. And my mom heard the gospel, repented of her sin, and put her faith in Christ. They met uh, on a beach in Charleston, my mom was engaged. My dad liked my mom. My dad thought it would be really romantic and he kind of undermined this other guy that he didn't want to be engaged to Tracy. And he says, let's stop here on the beach and pray. And my mom says, that's when I knew your, hus- your dad was my husband. But my, my dad was being deceptive. He used prayer as a way to get this girl. And, and they found out 25 years later, God honest truth, I promise you. And so they came together, they got married. And what did they do? They wanted to have a Christian marriage. They wanted to point their kids to Jesus. At age 10, I'm eating my Cheerios down in the basement. My dad was at the Pentagon, had some sugar on those Cheerios. My parents called me upstairs and they have this somber look on their face. I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble because I got beat as a child and it was by God's grace and it was God ordained and it was good for my soul, parents. And so I thought I'm about to get beat because I had a guilty conscience, but they shared the gospel with me. And I remember at age 10, 
just knowing, even though I didn't understand all the implications of the good news of Jesus, I knew that I was a sinner. And I had this weight on me, and I knew there was no other way that I could be forgiven. And they pointed my heart to Jesus. And right there in our town home, I repented of my sins and trusted in Christ. And I want to stay the course. I want to be rooted in the gospel. Who brought the gospel to you? Who was that? Who took the time to share, to be courageous, to be bold? If we're going to be engaged in the mission of God to see lives transformed by Jesus locally, nationally, and internationally, we need to not remove ourselves and move beyond the gospel. Timothy Keller, an author, theologian, pastor for many years, said the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the A to Z of the Christian life. What happens in a lot of churches, they get to a point where the gospel is accepted. Everybody accepts the gospel. Then the gospel moves to being assumed. Everyone assumes that everybody else knows the gospel. And then the gospel is confused, and then the gospel is lost. And here's what's happened, as one author says. Since the gospel is assumed and trivialized, since it's something that you believed back in your younger days or Sunday school or vacation Bible school, it was something for kids. Now the goal is to be good and moral. And in a few short generations, the gospel is lost, and churches and organizations who once were vibrant churches and vibrant organizations are now simply shells of where the gospel thrived. Go to your YMCA. That's an example. It used to be a training ground for people in the gospel. They don't want anything to do with the gospel now. Brown University. It was a university where people could come to get trained to go out into the highways and the byways in the world to tell people about Christ. They don't want anything to do with the gospel now. They've drifted from the mission that God has given them. They didn't stay rooted in the gospel. And we don't want to assume the gospel. We don't want to just think that everybody accepts the gospel. And one of the truths in many churches is that an assumed gospel... One of the ways that we see that an assumed gospel is prevalent is that you don't hear it anymore. What do I mean by that? Let me give you some examples. Was the gospel in the sermon or in the singing on Sunday morning? Did those who are not Christians have an opportunity to believe in the gospel? In a room this size with this many people, undoubtedly there are people who know they're not believers who have yet to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, there are those that are trusting in morality, and I want you to know that you're a sinner. And God loves you, cares for you deeply. He sent his son to live the life that you were called to live but did not. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father's will. He goes to a sinner's cross, a criminal's cross, and on the cross, the Bible says that he yelled out, why have you forsaken me? It was the only time that Jesus prayed and didn't get an answer. Why? For your salvation. What if he had answered him? Oh, come on off the cross. There would be no salvation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turned his gaze from Jesus because he became our sin. The eyes of the Lord are too pure and holy to look upon sin. He became our sin, goes to a tomb, uses it. It was only there for three days and rose triumphantly, defeating sin, death, and Satan because not all dead men stay dead. And if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we can be forgiven. We can have joy and hope, and forgiveness, and heaven, and life. If you're not a believer, you need to trust in Jesus. 
Or questions like, hey, when did you become a Christian? Instead of, hey, how was your week? What have you asked? Hey, I, I know your name. You've been in class, but when did you become a Christian? When did God save you? Do you hear the gospel in prayers? How are you growing in your understanding of sin and the work of Jesus? Do you see the gospel lived out as membership based upon a true commitment to the gospel or just because someone wants to join an organization? Could the preacher have preached a sermon if Jesus had not died on the cross? Could we have sung a particular song if Jesus had not died? The gospel is to infuse everything that we do. We want to stay rooted in the gospel. Stay the course, defend the gospel, pass on the gospel, and entrust the gospel to faithful men, women, boys, and girls. We want to multiply ourselves. We want to reproduce ourselves. So what did you hear? What did you hear this morning? What do you need to believe and do? Who's going to hold you accountable to that truth that you believe God wants you to do? Ryan Brown, one of our pastors, said this to me last week. We multiply ourselves, we reproduce ourselves because living things reproduce. Living things reproduce. And by the way, I'm not calling you to do something that Jesus does. Jesus is the one who builds the church. He's the one who sees lives change. He's the one who brings people to grace. He's the one who ushers people to understand, I need to get baptized, I need to, I need to serve. He's the one who does that, but he calls us to be faithful and obedient and courageous, stay rooted in the gospel, simply just be a normal, everyday guy like Edward Kimball. Nate, who is that joker? Who is Edward Kimball? Let me tell you. Edward Kimball was a guy who believed and trusted in Jesus, led a guy named D.L. Moody to Jesus. D.L. Moody was a famous Chicago preacher. Wilbur Chapman became a Christian under Moody's ministry. Chapman preached and shared the gospel, and a guy named Billy Sunday came to faith in Jesus. Billy Sunday preached and shared the gospel, just being faithful, understanding the call to be rooted in the gospel, and a guy named Mordecai Ham became a believer. And Mordecai Ham, just a normal, Jesus-loving, Jesus-sharing Christian, led a young man to faith in Christ, and his name was Billy Graham. And I bet in this room there are people who've been to a crusade who came to faith because of him. You see how the gospel is always going somewhere. It's not meant to stay with me. It's not meant to stay with you. It's always going somewhere. And increasingly, we want to be a church that sees reproduction, multiplication, taking the gospel beyond what God has so richly given to Graceland, this rich, vibrant history, this rich, vibrant present set of circumstances. And by God's grace, as we root ourselves in the gospel, we understand it, we defend it, we pass it on, we share it, and we entrust it to others. God is going to do miraculous, marvelous things just with normal, everyday people as we stay tethered to Jesus.